welcome to History Now, the history discussion programme which will look at aspects of Irish history and Belfast's connection to them. Joining me today is Alison Martin. Alison is an independent researcher who recently graduated with a master's degree from Queen's in the School of History, where she looked at Irish foreign policy between 1922 and 32, specifically Ireland, Russia and the disarmament efforts. Alison has written for a number of publications, including the Irish News, the Irish Story and History Ireland. My second guest is John Dorney. John is the editor of the excellent Irish Story, Irish History site, and has written a number of books on the Irish Revolutionary Period. John's recent books included Peace After the Final Battle, The Story of the Irish Revolution, which came out in 2014, and The Civil War in Dublin, which came out last year in 2017. You're both very welcome. Now, in my uh, research on the Irish Revolutionary Period, which I would admit is limited, um, I get the sense that from people I've spoken to, that's um, friends, some family members and people I've given lectures to in community groups, that here they sometimes view the Irish Revolutionary Period with um, some distance, in that a lot of people see it as um, a Dublin conflict or a Dublin and South West conflict like Cork and Tipperary, but that's not necessarily the case. Can you maybe give some examples of your own research where you've come across people of all various levels in the conflict um, who've participated in the likes of the, the rising, the, um, the Civil War and the War of Independence? And if I go to you, Alison, first. Yeah, well, from my research, um, I actually found out James Connolly, obviously quite well known, one of the leaders of the rising. He actually had a Belfast connection. So he actually was born in Edinburgh. Um, his parents were Irish immigrants. But in the years before the rising, he'd lived for a time in Belfast. Um, on the Falls Road because he'd been um, a union organiser and that was for Jim Larkin's Irish Trade and General Workers Union. So recently in 2016 there's actually a statue now to him on the Falls Road so I think that's become a bit of a kind of better known connection. Um, also related to James Connolly, um, his secretary Winfred Carney, um, she was actually born in Bangor but she was brought up, the family moved to Belfast, um, she was educated in Belfast, um, and she'd actually, as a secretary, she joined him in the GPO, writing his dispatches and things like that. So that was kind of another interesting Belfast connection. Yes, you're quite right that the popular memory of the 1920s is centred on the South and it's centred on events like the Rising in Dublin, like Bloody Sunday in Dublin. And people, it's slipped out of popular memory that, for example, there was a Bloody Sunday in Belfast in 1921, where actually more people were killed, in fact, and a lot more homes were destroyed. Um, I think that there's a reason why it's, it's slipped out of popular memory, and one reason is the later Troubles has kind of obscured it. But another reason is that nobody really in the North wanted to commemorate the what we now call the Revolutionary Period, or the, the Troubles of the 20s. And in the case of the Nationalist or Republican side, it was because they demonstrably lost, I mean, more, more so than any 20th century conflict. Um, they ended up in a partition in Northern Ireland. Their movement was crushed, certainly in the short term. But also in the case of, of Unionists, they had their great symbol in 1912, in the resistance to Home Rule and the Covenant. And in the First World War, to a degree, it fills in this role of blood sacrifice. But the actual conflict of the 1920s here in the North was extremely dirty. Um, and I suspect that the uni Unionist establishment didn't want to remember all aspects of it. Um, to deal with the second part of your question, so 
I mean, in fact, like the, the North has a central part in, in the history of this period. I mean, in the crudest possible terms, which is just the number of people killed, Belfast is the third after Dublin City, Cork County, and then it's Belfast City. You know, and at about 500 people lost their lives in Belfast within about two years, you know, which is a very significant number in Irish terms. Um, in terms of people, like the one that stands out um, in my research, which is, is centred on the kind of civil war in the South, but is Roger McCorley. One of the interesting things about Roger McCorley is he was the great grandson of Roddy McCorley, a famous United Irishman of the 1790s period. Um, and Roger was a militant Republican in Belfast. He organised an active service unit in the Belfast IRA against um, the wishes of, of some of the command, such as Joe McKelvey. Um, he was, you know, very committed to IRA actions in Belfast um, and he was one of the most kind of active in terms of trying to organise defence of Catholic neighbourhoods. Um, but one of the strange things from our perspective is Roger McCorley was also um, pro-treaty. So he's one of these northern volunteers who's convinced by Michael Collins' argument that the treaty will actually bring about the unification of Ireland. And he ends up going south and joining the Free State Army. And he serves throughout most of the Civil War on the pro-treaty side, the National Army side. And he ends up, you know, involved in some fairly nasty things, actually suppressing anti-treaty Republicans in the south, like he's involved in suppressing prison riots in Dublin, for example. He's sent down to Kerry and um, with a lot of Northern volunteers where the anti-treaty side was strong. So um, he actually leaves the, the National Army, the Free State Army, but his brother Felix remained in, in the Irish Army and, and rose to its top ranks. I mean, even as late as the Second World War, Felix McCorley was a senior intelligence officer. So it, it, the McCorley family for me are interesting in that they show A, the central influence of, of Northern people in the revolutionary period but also the kind of contradictions that Northerners ended up having to face. And just to go back to Alison, there's something that you said about Winifred Kearney. Mm -hmm. And I think what, um, I don't know if it's really well known, is the fact her relationship with her husband, who did... Who yeah, he fought actually in the Battle of the Somme. Yeah. So it was kind of, I mean, I think in 2016, they were kind of using this story because it's kind of, you know, it's quite an unusual example, like people from kind of two different communities, like someone who was involved in the Rising and someone who'd fought in the Battle of the Somme and then getting married. So, I mean, I think that was kind of used as a kind of, as a positive kind of yeah. story inter-community. At present, we're in the middle of the decade of centenaries and we're in a very important year in terms of the history of democracy. And that is the centenary of the representation of the People Act. And this has been um, celebrated more than commemorated, I would say, in a lot of circles as the, a pivotal moment in the enfranchisement of lots of um, members of the public of the time um, in their participation in democracy. As this act was passed in, the, in February of 1918, what was its impact, if any, on politicising um, new generations of people uh, who were recently enfranchised uh, in both unionists and nationalists' background? Generally, I think it definitely had an impact like in terms of the 1918, the general election. Um, sort of prior to the rising, uh, the Irish Parliamentary Party, that kind of home rule and things like that would have represented kind of majority of kind of the Irish public's opinion of what they would have wanted. But then sort of 1918, because at that time, the representation of the People Act, it did help in some way, although obviously there was other factors as well, um, for Sinn Féin to win a landslide victory. 
in terms of there would have been, you know, the electorate was trebled, so there was a lot of new voters, perhaps they wouldn't have had the same allegiances um, to the Irish Parliamentary Party. Uh, haven't said that it had some impact on the election, but there was obviously other factors, like for example, Sinn Féin, they were kind of associated, uh, the Easter Rising was kind of seen as a Sinn Féin rising. I mean, that wasn't obviously 100% accurate, but factors like that also helped Sinn Féin to win. I would say that the representation of the People Act, which is when w women get the vote for the first time in the United Kingdom, women over 30, and but also men uh, over 21 get the vote without property restrictions. So people probably don't know, but before the First World War, a very small percentage, about a third of the adult population had the vote in Ireland. Um, it came at a very bad time for the Parliamentary Party. And one reason, as Alison said, was because of the rising. And the other thing is because the British government was trying to, at the time, extend conscription to Ireland, um, which was extremely unpopular in most of Ireland. Um, one thing that might surprise people today, it was also unpopular among Northern Unionists because there was this feeling that they had that given enough. And um, even though the, you know, they certainly, their leaders were willing to see conscription imposed, there was a, a great deal of, of um, fear, I suppose, among both Northern Unionists and Nationalists about conscription. So in most of Ireland, the conscription campaign kind of did for the parliamentary party, in my opinion. I mean, it's, there's other things like Home Rule didn't happen that they, they had promised that the First World War was dragging on and on. But for me, it's conscription that finishes them. Um, except here in the North, where the Parliamentary Party remained kind of strong. Uh, Joe Devlin and, and uh, Joe Devlin would be the main one, but also they held on to a lot of their seats here in the North. Whereas in the South, with the odd exception, like Waterford, they were obliterated in that election. In 1918, obviously we had the representation of the People Act it came in in February of 1918, and the election wasn't until December of 1918. Now, I had a couple of interesting things, and you spoke about it briefly, um, was the anti-conscription effort. Uh, there was a general strike. You also had the likes of what was termed Gaelic Sunday. We had a lot of people um, mobilised to uh, act in defence of the Defence of the Realm Act. Do you think that the politicisation of February, from February onwards, had any had any burn on the organisation of people in things like that leading up to the um, December general election? I don't think it had a direct bearing on, on this kind of wave of politicisation. I think that was happening anyway. Um, so you, as you, you've, we've just said, I mean, you've got the aftermath of the Easter Rising and also the arrests after it and so on and the executions. Um, you've got the, the conscription crisis where I always like to say it shows the British government as from, you know, from an Irish nationalist perspective as both cruel and weak because they actually give way in, in the wake of, of popular pressure, general strike and, and the mass petition signing and so on. Um, they, actually, you know, they go back on it so it looks like they're beatable. Um, and, and then right after that you have what's called the German plot where they arrest all of the, most of the Sinn Féin leaders and a number of other leaders uh, based on a supposed uh, complicity with the Germans for which there was no, no real evidence. So it's again this idea of like, the government looks tyrannical, but on the other hand, they look beatable. So it, this kind of thing, if you combine with kind of, since 1912, you basically have a constitutional crisis. If you can imagine like in 1912, they're telling people home rule is on the way, a whole change to the government of Ireland is coming. And this never happens, you know? And so this kind of, I, I think the pressure, if you like, on the cooker is being turned up mm -hmm. gradually. And it's, it's starting to boil by the end of 1918. 
in the closing year or so of this period, the revolutionary period, um, we're talking the early 1920s, um, Belfast was engulfed in violence. Um, would it be fair to say that what happened in Belfast has been unjustly overshadowed, historically speaking, by the Civil War, which was concentrated in the South between what we now identify as pro and anti-treaty forces? We're 100 years on now, so you know, you, you've, you've moved in the last generation beyond a time when anyone has memory of this, a living memory. And I think, yeah, you've got the, you know, the cut and dried notion of, so you have kind of rising, you've got what we now call the War of Independence, um, and then what we call the Civil War is the thing that happens in the South between pro and anti-treaty factions. And some people have made the point that there's two different civil wars that happen, and one of them is in the North in early 1922, and the second one is in the South in late 1922. And certainly the, the war, if you want to call it that, or the violence in the North is very intense. There's a lot of people being killed. A much higher proportion of them are civilians than are killed in the, the South in the subsequent violence. And one of the kind of mi what might have been is um, had the civil war in the South not broken out, would you have had a direct confrontation between what was now the Irish Free State and Northern Ireland as had just come into being? Because again, people probably don't appreciate, but Michael Collins, who today people think of as like a peacemaker because he signed the treaty, was very hard line on the North. I mean, Collins was, was talking in his cabinet meetings that he was going to use the Free State Army against the North. You know, it, very, very radical language. Um, now, the anti-treaty Republican version is that Collins is not serious about this and it's a ruse to try to reunite the IRA under, under Collins's leadership. Um, I'm not convinced of that. I think Collins was genuinely very militant on the North, whether that's a good or a bad thing. Um, I do possibly think that the fact that there was a civil war in, in the South avoided, you know, the, the end game in the North in that period. In terms of memory, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's passed out. I, I kind of alluded to this before, but it's kind of passed out of popular memory, I suspect. Um, but I mean, it, I think before the more recent troubles, there was a kind of memory, especially like in Republican circles, like there was ballads like the Belfast Brigade, uh, you know, it has lines like um, the specials came from Hollywood and they were stopped at Seaford Street and stuff like that. So I, I think that there was more of a memory, but it probably got, you know, got clouded over by subsequent events. Being from Belfast myself, like from what I kind of knew growing up and that kind of thing, there's sort of the two main events historically would really be the Titanic. It's what they focus on, that's what the museums are, and that's what a lot of the books are about, um, and the troubles. So like a lot of tourists, they want to see the murals and that kind of thing. So even like people living from in Belfast, to my knowledge, from my experience, they wouldn't really have a lot of interest in kind of offence, you know, revolutionary offence in the early 1920s. You know, because things get remembered because people want to use them for the present. Mm -hmm. So it, do you think there's a case where you know, people don't particularly mm. want to use the events of the 20s. Yeah, I mean, side. sort of there's controversy and I mean, there's dangers with any type of commemoration and then especially you know, Belfast because of it being a divided society, you know, there's always a danger of commemorations being divisive. Yeah, I mean, you've written about the Easter Rising commemorations mm -hmm. here in the mm -hmm. north. I mean, they do commemorate, the, or, sorry, Republicans do mm -hmm. com did commemorate mm -hmm. the Rising in the years afterwards. Mm -hmm. But I mean, there wasn't mm -hmm. th there wasn't much in terms of mm -hmm. commemorating what they had done mm -hmm. in their 20s. Am I right yes, about that? Yes, that's right. And why do you think that was? Well, I think like with the, in a way with the Rising, for example, I mean, that was a more, in their eyes, I suppose, a simplistic kind of conflict. It was a fight for Irish independence. Mm -hmm. But then with offence like, for example, the Civil War, mm. it's much more kind of complicated in terms of, you know, there's pro-treaty, there's anti-treaty. It's not just 
uh, the Irish fighting for independence against the British state. Right. So the civil war, it's a bit more complex in terms of commemoration. I think uh, the main problem or the difficulty with commemorating the rising in the north is that it was essentially, it was always going to be kind of alien to the state. So 1921, so the first government in Northern Ireland, the Ulster Unionist Party won the election. So naturally they weren't going to be enthusiastic about commemorating the rising against British rule. Um, so by 1926, we have the Special Powers Act. It actually banned, um, well, it banned individual, not all, but individual Easter Rising commemorations um, because of kind of inflammatory comments uh, that had been made during the 1920s at Easter Rising commemorations at Milltown and things like that. Um, one of the ways the IRA kind of got around that in the North was during the 1930s. They kind of would have had their parade or their march to Milltown Cemetery, but they would have said mass um, because if they made it like a religious kind of ceremony, then that was a way of kind of getting around the special power attack, like a loophole. But having said that, there were still arrests, there was still uh, a lot of controversy associated with that. Just leading on from what Alison said, there was a, a controversy in the South in the years after um, the revolutionary period. Uh, in commemoration. I'm thinking in terms of there were still a lot of ex-servicemen there. There was um, what were known as the Poppy Day rats. Right. Um, could you perhaps tell us something about those? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a parallel with what Alison is saying, because people are left with commemorations they're not really that keen on, you know. Um, there is a difference, though, in the sense that, like, in the South, um, there wa it wasn't quite an obligation under the treaty, but it was expected of the free state government in the early years that they would look after um, veterans of the British Army. And so like the government actually paid for the War Memorial Park, which is in Island Bridge, it's near the Phoenix Park in, in central Dublin. Um, having said that, like the original plan was that the War Memorial Park would be in Marion Square, which is behind government buildings. And Kevin O'Higgins, who was the government minister and no friend of anti-treaty Republicans, but the government minister said, we can't have it there because then people will think that, you know, that that's what founded the state and that's what we represent. So they kind of shoved it out of the way, a little bit outside the city centre. I mean, in terms of the riots, this is this is a phenomenon of the, the anti-treaty Republicans who, remember, are defeated in the Civil War. They're, they're on the outliers of the free state, even though it's a nationalist state, you know. And one of the things that they, they're kind of casting around for stuff to do actually after the Civil War and ways to kind of assert themselves in public. And one of the things that they do is they attack what they call imperialist demonstrations. There's an awful lot of ex-servicemen in the South, especially in Dublin, but all over the, the South of Ireland. And they object to, you know, big marches past Trinity College where the, for example, where the Union flag is, is displayed. And they object to people selling poppies. And what's interesting actually is that as the 20s go on, the um, Republicans take a much more kind of nuanced view of this. So what happens from there, well, what they say is we're not against people commemorating the war because, you know, we know what it's like to lose our comrades and stuff. That's what they say. But we are against uh, imperialist displays and they, they highlight things like the um, British fascist movement actually coming over to Dublin to, you know, what they said was to champion imperialism. That's their words. And they said that was the reason they were opposing these marches. Um, so it kind of it was one of these things where um, the anti-treaty Republicans are trying to assert themselves in public. It did it does kind of tend to fizzle out after um, Fianna Fáil, which is almost the political wing of anti-treaty Republicanism, as Sean Lamas said, a slightly constitutional party. After they come to power, there's not so much need to do that, and the IRA is eventually outlawed by by them. 
Um, but yeah, there, there is a parallel. I mean, one of the, the interesting things, though, is that Patrick Yates, who, who's looked at this a lot, said, has said that, you know, a narrative appeared kind of in the 80s and 90s and 2000s where, you know, the uh, commemoration of the First World War was suppressed in the South. I said, that's not really the case. He said it was, there were large demonstrations up until the 40s, the Second World War, when during the emergency, as they called it down South, um, all demonstrations were, were outlawed. And he said, and then it kind of passed out of, you know, it started to pass out of generations. So it wasn't the case really that it was suppressed at an official level, but certainly on the part of anti-treaty Republicans, there was a lot of hostility towards it. So do you think that was a similar thing that you're saying about it passed out of memory, the way, you know, the um, 1920s in Belfast passed out of memory? Very so, much so. You know? I mean, and, and, and like that, I mean, it was a complicating thing. I mean, a lot of the people in the South who, I would say most families in the South had people who were in the British Army, even including families of, of nationalist and very nationalist background. Um, and people didn't necessarily want to remember this, you know, so just like the 20s, people did tend to forget it. And recently there's this vogue of, of kind of bringing back that history, you know, to, which I suppose to show the complexity of Irish history. So yeah, you've both shown how the complexities of commemoration, especially in the immediate aftermath of the events. But we're in a period now where we have um, participated in commemoration and for the most part they have been inclusive and they've tried to be inclusive. I think now at the halfway point we're getting into territory where it's going to be much more contested commemorations. It's going to be much more difficult for um, politicians and stuff to commemorate. How do you see the last couple of years commemorations? Have they been a good thing and have they been as inclusive as people have been trying to do? And what problems do you foresee the commemorations on further down the line with commemorating the War of Independence and probably the Civil War is going to be very um, difficult to commemorate? I think like in 2016, like the centenary of the rising, I think in the Republican uh, people generally thought, despite some kind of trepidation, that the commemorations of the Rising were kind of tasteful um, and generally they were done well and that they were quite inclusive and appropriate. Um, I thought the same in Northern Ireland. Um, in Belfast, for example, they had an exhibition in 2016, Reflections on 1916. So it was not just on the Rising, but it, it was an exhibition on the Rising, but also the Somme, the Battle of Jutland, and looking at kind of figures that maybe been marginalised, like women in the past. Um, there was some controversy, there was some more politicised events, but generally I thought things had gone quite well. Um, Arlene Foster, for example, for obvious reasons, she'd said she didn't want to attend a commemoration of the Rising, but she said she would attend a discussion. So she did go to a discussion on the Rising by leading historians. So in that regard, we are kind of moving forward, hopefully. But I think about a year ago, President Higgins in a speech, he said, well, the most difficult anniversaries are, are yet to come. Um, so with the War of Independence, the Civil War, it may not be as clear. Um, thinking even with the Civil War, it's going to be difficult. Like, what do we commemorate? Will mm -hmm. it be far with regards to like commemorating those killed on the Free State side or on the Republican side? There's going to be a lot of sensitivities. Yeah, people ask me this all the time. Actually, how should we commemorate, especially the Civil War? Because that's you know I wrote my last book about that and. Uh, one of my answers is that I kind of don't care because, I mean, from a historian's point of view, I think commemoration is something for politicians. You know, commemoration is all about getting on messaging and, you know, everyone feeling good and stuff afterwards. But history is not about that. You know, history is about learning from the past and, 
and learn, well, learning about the past, you know, learning what really happened. So, I mean, in terms of like, you know, you can sell the Easter Rising as, oh, well, this was this very important cultural event kind of thing. And uh, the representation of the People Act, uh, you know, they've made it about votes for women. So they've tied it into suffragettes and stuff like that. Um, there's no way to sell stuff like, you know, the, to give one example, um, Bloody Sunday of 1920 in Dublin, um, if you like the first Bloody Sunday, where Colin sends out a load of um, IRA operatives to assassinate intelligence agents in their beds, most of them. Um, and the British retaliate by driving to Crow Park to the Gaelic Stadium and gunning down part of the crowd. There's no way to, to make that a shared message, you know. That's the truth. And similarly, even the North, it would be even worse if in, in from that point of view in terms of stuff like the, um, the shipyard riots of the summer of 1920 where, um, you know, loyalist workers marched on, on the, the shipyards and they expelled 7,000 Catholics who were working there. And, you know, and then that was, from their point of view, that was in reprisal for the assassination of a policeman, Detective Swansea, as he was leaving church in Lisburn. So, you know, when people talk about commemoration, I, I say, well, okay, we can say this stuff never happened or we can forget about it, if that's what you want. There's not really any way of, of making all that nice, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I, don't look at it, I don't look at that as my job though, yeah. to be honest with you. I'm glad it's someone else's job. Yeah. You look at political dynasties, mm -hmm. you know, and the, you, you see the same names after generation after generation who are politicians. You could almost work your way back to the treaty split through some families who are still involved in politics. Yeah. It's going to be difficult in that, in that regard, at least to a certain extent in those families. It maybe hasn't slipped out of popular memory the way it has with lots of the public. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think in terms of like present day politics in, in the South, it's not that relevant anymore. But I mean, in terms of family memory, certainly, yes. I mean, I, I happened to be working on a, a genealogy project recently with Bertie O'Hearn, the former Taoiseach, and his father was, was interned during the Civil War. Um, and certainly there's, there's no, there's no uh, uh, cross-political sympathy in Bertie's heart, I don't think, you know, for the other side. But even I think like within one family, there could have been one family member who supported the treaty and then one family member who strongly opposed the treaty. Absolutely. So even within one family, there's going to be a bit of division in terms of which side is commemorated, which side is seen as kind of the victim. Yeah, I mean, do you know what's interesting though as well as um, things that I've found? I mean, I ended up talking to a lot of people who were interested in the, in the Civil War in the South. And what, you tend, what I've tended to find is, I'm thinking of one guy in particular here, so it turned out that his family was in the Civil War and they were on the anti-treaty side, but he actually became involved in politics at the time of the hunger strikes in, in the early 80s, and he became politicised in that way. Um, but, you know, he identifies with the Civil War in the sense that, like, he remembers he was on demonstrations and the Guardi would come and, and beat him up and stuff. And he, inter he, uh, he interprets it through that prism, I think. You know, I think, so like all history, I think people always reinterpret it based on their own experiences yeah. you know and we're, we're going to see that mm -hmm. so that's the one thing that commemoration can't do I, yeah. I would suggest is you know change people's minds really well thank you very much both for coming here today and giving me your opinions on a few relevant uh, topics thank you thank you